highness. Now, this is from ideology to unity, a spiritual journey where we let go of ego and ideological doctrine in favor of meaning, purpose, and unity as a whole. So today I'm doing another reading of um, The Birth of Tragedy by Friedrich Nietzsche, which is published by Penguin Classics. And where we left off in the last episode I did was, so one of the things we talked about is the need for us sort of to be grounded on one hand, but on the other hand, to, to be in touch with the divine and the spiritual as well. And this relates, and it's just a general a balance and integration of offices between different things here, and between the Apolline and the Dionysiac, and you know, the grounded and the spiritual. You don't want to be untethered and just in the clouds. You don't want to be ungrounded. Both are important. And also, there's a sort of, there's a sense of if you connect to the divine in a Dionysiac way, say, let's say you take DMT or you just you meditate all day or you have, you have some sort of eureka revelation about reality. You get in a Dionysiac state of, you see how everything's connected. You feel how everything's making your place in the whole of the universe and all of that. You see the great grand majesty of it and your, your place in everything. And when you come out of that state, you might feel like, what's the point of all this? Other well, all the day-to-day stuff is all meaningless compared to that majesty and wonder, right? And that might be distressing in some way. I mean, it's just like what I said, no consolation will be of any use for now. Logging passes over the world or death beyond the gods themselves. Existence radiantly reflect, reflected in the gods or in the immortal beyond is denied. Aware, aware of the truth from a single glimpse of it, all man can now see is the horror and absurdity of existence. So there's that. And what Nietzsche discussed was how comedy and the sublime can help us deal with that. So you know, the taming of horror through art and I'll read out the last paragraph just to clarify as well. Here in the supreme menace to the will, there approaches a redeeming, healing, and charges art. She alone can turn these thoughts of repulsion at the horror and absurdity of existence into ideas compatible with life. These are the sublime, the taming of horror through art and, the, and comedy, the artistic release from the repellence of the absurd. The subtle chorus of the diathran is the salvation of Greek art. The frenzies described above were exhausted in the middle world of these Dionysiac attendants. So yeah, that's where we were last time. I even discussed some of the ramifications of contemporary modern technology that can involve a sort of the benefits of the sublime and comedy. <clears throat> if we lose, if we don't have so much of that benefit, <clears throat> if we're not in touch with true beauty and art, 
um, we might not have a way to cope with reality so well. <clears throat> so that's where we were before. <clears throat> and yeah, I guess I'll read the next section, or at least part of it. We'll see. The satyr, like the idyllic shepherd of her own more recent age, is the product of a longing for the primal and the natural. But how firmly and fearlessly did the Greeks hold on to this man of the woods? And how effeminately and timidly has modern man dallied with the flattering image of a dainty flute-playing sentimental shepherd? Nature still unaffected by knowledge. The bolts of culture still unenforced. This is what the Greeks saw in the satyr. And for that reason, they did not conflate him with the apes. On the contrary, he was the archetype of man, the expression of his highest and most intense emotions, an inspired reveler enraptured by the closeness of his God, a sympathetic companion in whom God's suffering is repeated, the harbinger of wisdom from the very breast of nature, a symbol of nature's sexual omnipotence, which the Greeks are were accustomed to considering with respectful astonishment. Sorry, I'm getting a Dionysia vibe with the satire here. Um, and, but when it talks about sexual omnipotence, I'm getting this vibe that it's not just about the overtly sexual, but also about sexual energy in a more general way, and the sense that art is actually um, an expression of sexual energy, in a sense. Um, yeah, well, I'm going to carry on. The satyr was something divine and sublime. He must have been seen particularly so to the painfully broken gaze of the Dionysian man. He would have been insulted by the dress-up meretricious shepherd. His eye rested in sublime satisfaction on the undisguised, untraveled, wondrous traits of nature. Here, the illusion of culture has been erased from the archetype of man. It was here that the true man revealed himself, the bearded satyr celebrating his God. Before him, the man of culture shriveled up into a mendacious caricature. Schiller was right in his appraisal of the origins of tragic art. The chorus is a living wall against encroaching reality because the satyr chorus depicts existence more truly, more authentically, more completely than the man of culture who sees himself as the sole reality. Because this man of culture, perhaps he, you know, he follows fashion. I'm, I'm, this might be a hint of judgment in what I'm saying. And he, um, he might pay attention on the superficial things. And, rather than on the divine and the sublime, right? Maybe this links to the idea of the last man that Nietzsche talks about in another of his texts. But um, yeah, anyway, I'll carry on. So it also emphasizes the importance of authenticity here. People trying to put a mask to fit in rather than just 
being one's being, right? The realm of poetry does not lie outside the world, a fantastic impossibility, the product of the, a poet's mind. It wishes to be precisely the opposite of this, the unadorned expression of truth, and must for that very reason cast off the mendicious finery of the supposed reality of the man of culture. The contrast between this authentic natural truth and the lie of culture masquerading as the sole reality is like the contrast between the eternal core of things, the thing in itself, and the, the entire world of phenomena. And just as tragedy with its metaphysical consolation points to the eternal life of the core of the satyr chorus analogously, wait, I kind of skipped something there. The contrast between this authentic natural truth and the lie of culture masquerading as the sole reality is like the contrast between the eternal core of things, the thing itself, the thing in itself, and the entire world of phenomena. And just as tragedy with its metaphysical consolation points to the eternal life of that core and the constant destruction of phenomena, the symbolism of the satyr chorus analogously expresses the primal relationship between the thing in itself and the world of appearances. Modern man's idyllic shepherd is nothing more than a counterfeit of the sum of cultural illusions that he takes to be nature. The Dionysiac Greek wanted truth and nature at the summit of their power and saw himself transformed into the satyr. So there's this, there's a contrast here between the recognition of things as they are in their being, right? Just as being and the connection to all things in a holistic sense. And on the other hand, concern with the, the trivial and the temporary and the contingent, that which is contingent upon the eternal. And yet those, an example in the contemporary times would be those who, especially, it's, 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 you get typically it's a, um, it can be an atheist mentality potentially of where science is really looked up to, but all the mainstream science and everything advocated by, let's say, Neil deGrasse Tyson or something, it would be like, ah, oh, so wonderful, obviously true, it's wonderful. And they'll um, follow the fashions and it's like, not really, and kind of just going with the herd of it. Now, I, I admit there's a bit of judgment in what I'm saying here, and uh, that it might be better if it wasn't there, but there we go. Um, also, when people go through the motions and are ritualistic with religion, as opposed to just having that direct connection, when people go through, confuse the rituals for the real connection, when people just confuse what really matters with the the personas and the, the conditioning of society and fitting in, right? That isn't really authentic. It's the 
the Dionysiac man, the satyr, is much more in touch with their connection to everything and being itself. And that's something that is important in the New Age community as well, this idea of um, simply being the I am presence rather than all these identities, egoic identities and labels, right? So, the ecstatic horde of Dionysiac votaries celebrated under the influence of such moods and insights, whose power was transformed before the, their very eyes, that they imagined they saw themselves as reconstituted geniuses of nature as satyrs. The latter constitution of the tragic chorus is the artistic imitation of this natural phenomenon, which required a separation between Dionysiac spectators and Dionysiac votaries, who are under the god's spell. We must never forget that the audience of the Attic tragedy discovered itself in the chorus of the orchestra, and that there was no fundamental opposition between the audience and the chorus. For everything was simply a great sublime chorus of dancing, singing satyrs, or of those who satyrs the satyrs represented. Schiegel's phrase must take on a different sense in this context. The chorus is the ideal spectator, insofar as there is only there is the only viewer, the viewer of the visionary world on the stage. And it also seems to reflect that. Earth is in a sense, or the reality, the holographic reality we're in is the stage and divine sources, the observation of that. And we are the I am, which is connected to that fundamentally. So, or is that fundamentally? The audience of spectators as we know it was unknown to the Greeks. In their theaters beyond anyone in the terraces rising in concentric arcs was able to overlook the whole of the surrounding cultural world and in satisfied contemplation to imagine themselves members of the chorus. So consider here that there was this sense of unity between the observer and the observed. The audience, and the stage. And that's interesting because it reflects the sense that we are united with the divine. And we can be observers, right? There's an interesting recognition that the Greeks had. Thus, we may call the chorus at this primitive stage of original tragedy a reflection of Dionysiac man for his own contemplation. We can imagine this phenomenon most clearly if we think of an actor who, in his talent, can see the role that he is to perform, hovering palpably before his eyes. The satire chorus is primarily a vision of the Dionysiac mass, just as the world on the stage is a vision of this satire chorus. The power of this vision is strong enough to make the gaze dull and the unresponsive impression, 
and unresponsive to the impression of reality, in the British commons, to the men of culture in the seats all around. The shape of the Greek theater recalls a lonely mountain valley. The stage architecture appears as a luminous cloud formation seen by the Bacchae as they swarm down from the mountains. The wonderful frame in the middle of which the image of Dionysus is revealed to them. So, on one hand, um, tragedy and um, Greek theater was seen like as a barrier to reality. But on the other hand, it's like a connection, a way they can connect to the true higher reality rather than the mere distractions of the man of culture, say. <laughs> and I don't mean to use that in terms of um, uh, how, how that term is used in the, uh, how do I put it, weeb community or whatever. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so, um, To our scholarly view of the elemental artistic processes, this primal aesthetic phenomenon evoked as a way of explaining the tragic chorus is almost repellent. While nothing could be clearer than the poet, than the poet becomes a poet only by seeing himself surrounded by characters living and acting before him, and allowing himself to see into their innermost natures. A particularly modern weakness inclines us to see the primal aesthetic phenomenon in too complicated and abstract a way. Something that's felt in a very direct way, right? An intuitive way, it's not something intellectualized. For the true poet is, for the true poet, the metaphor is not a rhetorical figure, but a representative image that really hovers before him in the place of a concept. For him, the character is not a whole laboriously assembled from individual traits, but a person insistently living before his eyes, distinguished, distinguished from the otherwise identical version of the painter by his continuous life and action. It's interesting that a person is It's like a persona, it's like an egoic identity, right? But it's kind of an illusion in some sense. Just as a character is that too. It's an interesting recognition there. Um, it's the divine source, the soul that's really the being. How is it that Homer describes so much more visually than any other poet? Because he looks so much more clearly. We talk of, the, of poetry in such an abstract way because most of us are bad poets. The aesthetic phenomenon is fundamentally a simple one. Grant someone only the ability continually to see a living play, to live constantly surrounded by hordes of spirits, and he will be a poet. It's all a living play, isn't it? 
reality is a living pledge. If one feels the desire to transform oneself and to speak from other bodies and souls, one is a dramatist. The Dionysiac excitement is capable of communicating to a whole crowd of people the artistic gift of seeing itself surrounded by a host of spirits with which it knows itself to be profoundly united. And that is a key recognition. So the true poet, he's saying, the true artist, the true, you know, true artist, is the recognized the unity of all things that they're part of. So they're not seeing themselves as separate from what they're portraying. They're seeing themselves, that's just a reflection of them that they are part of. This process is the primal dramatic phenomenon in the tragic chorus, seeing oneself transformed and acting as though one had truly entered another body, another character. This process is the start of evolution of the evolution of the drama. This is a different matter from the rhapsodist who does not fuse with his images, but rather like the painter sees them outside of himself with a contemplative eye. It is the abandonment of individuality by entering another character. Um, something interesting about the idea about the, the poet seeing, a true poet seeing himself as surrounded by a host of spirits with which it knows itself to be profoundly united. I, what came to mind was, I, I come across this interpretation sometimes um, of Nietzsche, that Nietzsche was about a down-to-earth, grounded, taking action, don't just read books and stuff, You've got to live and direct to action. All this spiritual new age stuff is nonsense, right? You just got to like be supremacy over nature, sort of thing, right? And then just like, I'm getting so, such new age mystical vibes from this, this need from nature, right? And I, I'm not seeing this as um, some super. like grounded not that it's not grounded but like non-mystical non-spiritual thing that's just dealing with the physical facts that are um around us in physical reality no 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 this is about it is about groundedness but it's also about the spiritual unity at the same time, I mean, unity is about community of opposites. So the grounded and the, say, the air and fairy, so to speak, you know, are, are one in what he's recognizing here. It's not, there's no opposition in truth between groundedness and taking action on one hand and recognition of the divine and the unity of all things it's one can create move, take action dynamically a grounded way and be spiritual united and um new age or into mysticism right 
mysticism need not be ungrounded. True mysticism is grounded, right? True spirituality is grounded. It's not like you have to pick. Are you grounded or are you spiritual, right? It's almost like Nietzsche isn't talking about a perspective that's atheistic or disconnected from the ideal or idealism and the idea of a uh, love of all things and unity with all things it's not like Nietzsche's not saying that's mystical claptrap you take action in now in, in the physical and like master reality sort of thing in a physical sense no no um I admit that I might have um, a bias or an investment there to sort of clarify correct and uh yeah, I admit that, but um, nevertheless, I'm, I'm speaking my truth and what came to me. So, that was like, the scanning through the writing, the page there. And this phenomenon, uh, okay, I'll, I'll go slightly back because, so you know where I was. This is a different matter from the rhapsodist who does not fuse with his images, but rather like the painter sees himself, sees them outside himself with a contemplative eye. It is an abandonment of individuality by entering another character. And this phenomenon appears with epidemic frequency. A whole host of people can be cast under this spell. For this reason, the dithram, the dithram is significantly different from all other forms of choric song. The virgins who solemnly enter the temple of Apollo, laurel branches in their hand, singing a processional song, remain who they are and keep their names as citizens. The dithyramic chorus is a chorus of people transformed, whose civic past and social status are completely forgotten. They have become a timeless worshippers of their God, beyond all social contingencies. All other choral lyrics of the Greeks are merely tremendous intensification, a tremendous intensification of the individual Apolline singer. While the Dithram, a community of unconscious actors, stands before us, seeing themselves as transformed. Enchantment is the precondition of all dramatic art. In this Enchantment, the Dionysiac reveler sees himself as a satyr, and it is as a satyr that he looks upon the god. In his transformation, he sees a new vision outside of himself, the Apolline complement of his state. With this new vision, the drama is complete. So that's a unity between the Apolline and the Dionysiac. The Apolline actually complements the Dionysiac, and that is... Wonderful. In the light of this insight, we must see Greek tragedy as a Dionysiac chorus 
continuously discharging itself in, a, in an Apolline world of images. All these symbolism and images that are evoked by the Dionysiac chorus are, well, it's connected. It's a symbiosis. That's the ideal art that captures, that integrates both of these aspects. Those choric sections which reoccur throughout the tragedy are therefore, so to speak, the womb of what is called the dialogue, the entire onstage world, the drama proper. And our world reflects that. In several successive discharges, this primal ground of tragedy radiates that vision of the drama, which is inherently, no, which is entirely a dream phenomenon and thus epic in nature. But on the other hand, as the objectification of a Dionysiac state. It is not Apolline redemption through illusion, but rather a representation of the fragmentation of the individual and his unification with primal being. Thus the drama is the Apolline symbol of Dionysiac knowledge and Dionysiac effects, and consequently separated from the epic by a tremendous, tremendous chasm. Hmm. This interpretation perfectly explains the chorus in Greek tragedy. The symbol of the crowd in the Dionysiac state, accustomed as we are to the function of a chorus on the modern next stage, and the operatic chorus in particular, we are unable to understand that the tragic chorus of the Greeks is older, more primordial, indeed more important than the action itself. As tradition is so clearly told us, given that traditionally great importance and originality, we cannot discern why it should have been made up exclusively of humble votaries, at first only of goat-like satyrs, and the orchestra in front of the stage was always a puzzle to us. But now we know that the stage, and the action were fundamentally and originally conceived only as a vision, that the sole reality is the chorus, which generates the vision from within and speaks of it with all the symbolism of dance, sound, and words. This chorus, symbolically, had this idea that the sound of a chorus is obviously vibration, right? Perhaps the truth of it is frequency and vibration, the spiritual frequency of vibration, right? And in source, in the soul, the I am, or yeah, infinite source, and from infinite source, like you drop a pebble of water and it, the, the water spreads out in waves, rising and falling, rising and falling, rising and falling. And if you consider, a galaxy has these. If you look at a galaxy and you look at the the arms of it, it sort of for aligns with like waves coming out from the center. And sort of like a vortices where that affects that which the medium it's on, the medium. So in that case, it starts. But if you drop a pebble, it's all coming out from the center. Right, radiating out, so to speak. But it comes from above. And this, 
And so in a sense, it, it's similar to this idea that the chorus is the, well, I'll read out again, I guess, is the true, that the soul reality is the chorus, which generates the vision from within itself, generates the vision from within. That was Neville Goddard. And uh, it's the idea of mentalism that we create, the reality is created from the mind, that the vision is the creation of what's external and it's projected out, right? Manifestation of creating reality. And it's done, and it's in a sense, it's a divine dance with all that is, right? It's all synchronized. You see, you can just see all the numbers come up. It's a reflection of this grand dance, this play or this tragic story or whatever it is you call it, you know. And it involves dance, sound, or words, right? And of course, these things involve frequency. In its vision, this chorus beholds its Lord and Master, Dionysus, and hence it is always a chorus of votaries. It sees how he, the God, suffers and is exalted, and it therefore does not act itself. In this function of complete devotion to the God, it is the supreme Dionysiac expression of nature. Therefore, like nature, it speaks under the spell of wise and or oracular sayings. Nature itself is the deity in question, right? Reality source, yeah. Sharing his suffering, it is also the wise, heralding the truth from the very heart of the world. The heart, of course, is symbolic of love. You know, the heart chakra. Um, This is the origin of that fantastic, apparently repellent figure of the wise and inspired Saturn, which is also the simple man. In contrast to the God, the image of nature and nature's strongest impulses, the symbol of those impulses, and also the herald of its wisdom and art. Musician, poet, dancer, clairvoyant in a single person. At first, Dionysus, the true stage hero and the focus of the vision is, in the light of this insight, according to tradition, not really present in the very oldest periods of tragedy, but is only imagined to be present. Tragically, no, tragedy that is, the original, oh, I'll say it again. But is only imagined to be present. Tragedy, that is, is originally chorus and not drama. Later, the attempt is made to show that show the God as real, to represent the visionary form as well as its transfiguring frame in the form visible, in form visible to all eyes. This is the beginning of the drama in the narrow sense. Is he saying that at first it was music, a chorus, singing, a Dionysiac sort of chorus, that kind of festivity, say, <clears throat> that was the Dionysiac, and that, and later drama started taking on those characteristics. 
not just a polyene characteristic. Something like that. <clears throat> as well as its configuring frame in the form visible to all eyes. This is the beginning of the drama in the narrow sense. Now the dithyramic chorus is given the task of simulating the mood of the audience in such a Dionysiac way that when the tragic hero appears on the stage, they do not see, for example, the awkwardly masked man, but rather a visionary form born, so to speak, out of their own rapt vision. If we consider Admetus lost in contemplation, recalling his recently departed wife, Al Alcetus, Alcestis, and, his, and completely consumed by his imaginary vision of her, and suddenly a woman with a similar form and gait is led towards him in disguise. If we imagine his sudden tremor of unease, his impetuous comparison, his instinctive conviction, then we have an analogy to the emotion that the spectator felt when in a state of Dionysiac excitement, he saw the God with whose suffering he had already identified walking onto the stage. He involuntarily trans, trans oh, involuntarily translated the entire image of the god that was trembling before his soul into that masked figure and dissolved its reality into a ghostly, ghostly unreality. This is the Apolline dream state, in which the daylight world is revealed and a new world, more distinct, comprehensible, and affecting than the other, and yet more shadowy. It's constantly reborn before our eyes. <clears throat> it comes off as multi-dimensional, like four or five dimensional, in a sense, maybe. <clears throat> Accordingly, we can see a radical contrast of styles in tragedy, the language, color, mobility, and dynamic of speech become completely separate spheres of expression in the Dionysic lyric of the chorus and the Apolline dream world of the stage. The Apolline phenomena in which Dionysus is objectified are no longer a boundless sea, a changing weft, a glowing life, like the music of the chorus. They are not only those powers that are that inspired worshipper of Dionysus, that the inspired worshipper of Dionysus merely feels and does not condense into an image in which he feels the closest of God now. The clarity and solidity of the epic forms speak to him from the stage. Dionysus no longer speaks through powers, but as an epic hero, almost with the language of Homer. So this beautiful Dionysiac trance state, the, so to speak, that, that, that aspect <clears throat> is there, but it's, you get the images from, you get it condensed into images by combining it with the Apolline. And by having on the stage, that is, by having the chorus on the stage, you know, it's sort of, it integrates it all together in something very unitive. Such that that's why that the, uh, the spectators felt they were fundamentally unified with what they were viewing, which made it such a, a transcendental experience. So that's the end of um, chapter eight or section eight. It doesn't really, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's chapter eight. Yeah. So I'll leave that for now.
I've done longer episodes for sure. But yeah, I, I feel satisfied with chapter eight there. So yeah, I'm curious to hear your to see your comments and perspective. And uh, feel free to like or subscribe and to share this with others. And uh, well, have a nice day or have a nice evening. And uh, yeah, bye for now.